Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. If you've lost your place in Psalms 116, please find it there again because I'm going to be teaching out of this great psalm. As you read it silently, probably you noted that it is actually a testimony of an unnamed poet. And we want to see what we can learn from this great poem inspired by the Holy Spirit. The most poignant moment I can remember in golfing sport history took place in 1995 at the Masters Tournament on the 18th hole of the last day when Ben Crenshaw sunk a punt that made him the champion. He was the second oldest champion of that event, 43 years of age. But it was a moment when he just, remember if you've seen it, he just really crumbled into a heap of tears. And the reason for that was that the day before, so the commentators said, the reason he did that was because his mentor, Harvey Pinnock, had been buried the day before and not the day before of that ending of the tournament, but before the tournament began. And he was grieving the loss of his mentor. And certainly that was part of it. But sometimes events occur and we are so relieved that they are over. We actually have more relief that those events are over, especially when we had a goal in mind, a responsibility to fulfill, and we achieved the goal. I think that had a lot to do with why Ben Crenshaw had that moment where he literally collapsed in tears. We read this psalm, and there's reference to this psalmist having tears in his eyes. And he was fighting a valiant battle. We do, know, do not know the exact nature of that battle. But what we do know is it was a stressful moment and probably an elongated time of stress in his life. When God finally came in response, the right response that this man made to his problems. This passage divides rather easily into three sections. The first having to be the request of this man in question. Look at verse 1. Let's read it together, and I'll comment as I work my way through the passage. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. This man had a great love for the Lord, and he specifies why. He specifies the Lord has heard him. Have you ever heard from the Lord? In order for us to really come to know the Lord, we come to him by faith. And the Bible teaches us in the book of Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. We hear the word of God as we read it, as we listen to it, when it's taught, 
and God speaks to us, and the result is when we respond properly in faith to hearing the voice of the Lord, we experience his deliverance in our lives. Look what he goes on to say there in the last part of verse 2. I shall call upon him as long as I live. This man was radically rearranged. We don't know all the specifics of what was happening in his life, but what we do know the outcome was a rearrangement of his soul. And it was a drawing nearer to God. And it was in the context in his personal life of difficulty. Look at verse 3. The cords of death encompassed me, and the errors, terrors rather of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. When we read earlier from the 107th Psalm, we see this is a common refrain in these two Psalms, and not just these two Psalms, but the Psalms, as C.S. Lewis says, are the most human of all the biblical writings because people expose the things that are going on in their lives, whether it's their sin or their sorrow, whatever is going on, they speak very forthrightly with God. There is a certain degree of desperation associated with the Psalms, and that is certainly true here. The language which this man uses is somber language, desperate language. And then he says in verse 3, Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. This man called on the name of the Lord. Before anyone can experience salvation, that person has to call on the name of the Lord. In the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 13, the Bible says, All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As we work our way through the passage, we're going to come to an, a word I'm going to talk about now, and I'll try to bring you back to it when we do. But it's appropriate at this juncture in the message about our salvation. The word that's used for save in this passage is a word which came from a word which was an adjective, a descriptive word, and that word initially was a word which meant open or free. It was the opposite of not being cramped. Sin has that capacity. It hems us in. It cramps us. God designed us to live a full life, what Jesus describes as abundance in life. But the reality is our sin, our own selfishness, alienates us from that kind of life. And God himself comes and he hems us in. I like to compare the Christian life as like a sieve. At the top, we enter in this dialogue with God and God speaking to us, and God sort of helps us come down this sieve until we're face to face with him. Have you had that kind of relationship with God? He speaks to you and he speaks to you perhaps even in your pain as he spoke to this man in his pain. I'll refer to C.S. Lewis one more time. C.S. Lewis talked about how God yells at us in our pain. He whispers to us in many ways. We know he has a voice that's a still small voice, but our pain causes us to really pause and look. 
Sometimes it's emotional pain. Sometimes it's physical pain. But it all boils down in the end to the spiritual pain. The reality of being alienated by our own sin from God. And he's the one who has the capacity to usher us out and issue us into a broad place. When I was trying to make a decision about actually coming to this church, it's hard to believe it's been over 25 years since that happened. I remember agonizing. I was in a church that I'd been in for 10 years. It had been, a, quite frankly, a difficult assignment. Of the three pastorates I've had, it was by far the more most rather difficult assignment. And I didn't want to run away from it because I knew that that was not God's MO for any of us who know him and love him. We don't run away from trouble. We run to him in our trouble. There's a big difference, isn't there? And I, he had used those 10 years in my life to do a lot of things that needed doing, adjustments to him and to life according to him, not according to my agenda, but according to his agenda. So I was praying, I was seeking the Lord, I was fasting, trying to hear from the Lord about this. And three different days during that period, as I was reading the word of God, God spoke to me. And the first time he spoke, me, I spoke to me, I said, Lord, I don't want to be fooled. I know you wouldn't fool me, but I don't want to be fooled by myself, my flesh, nor by the devil. So please, Lord, if what you've just said is not from you, please no more mention of it, would you, Lord? Now, if I'm bossing God there, and that's not a very good thing to do, you know. Well, this, the line was simply these words. I will bring you into a broad place. That's what it said. So I exhaled and I said, okay, Lord, I'm still seeking confirmation from you, from your word. I continued to read. Not that day. I was just following my daily habit of spending time alone with the Lord in the word of God. I can't tell you how many days passed, a few days, maybe a week or two, and lo and behold, those words were in my reading. I will bring you into a broad place. I said, Lord, is it possible that you're saying this to me? And I began to get a little giddy, to be honest with you, because I'd sort of already fallen in love with this church, and all those people are gone almost now, but I still love this church being the pastor. I'm so grateful to be the pastor of this church. And then, lo and behold, third time, the same words. I was so delighted to hear from the Lord that he was bringing me out of a cramped place into a broad place. Now, mind you, over the 27 years I've served as your pastor, everything has not been a rose garden. It hasn't been easy. There have been a lot of tough times in the church and in my personal life and in the lives of those whom I love, not just my natural family, but my spiritual family. But the good news is it has been a broad place. God is true to his word. And when God works his salvation in our lives, it's not free of difficulty, but it is still a broad place because he is there with us. And he sees us through it. So we see the request of this man for the help of the Lord, for deliverance, for salvation, if you will. Now, look at what he says about the Lord himself in the next section. 
Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. This man came to know God in his difficulty. And probably he had known about the righteousness of God all of his life, as far back as he could remember. Here's why. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was of the nation of Israel. He was familiar with the law of God. It was to him probably so many rules and regulations, rather than emphasizing a relationship with God, he missed that part of it, probably, and it all changed when he found himself in this place of distress and he cries out to God. And what does he discover God to be in addition to a righteous God? Make no mistake about it, God is holy righteousness. And he will never be anything but righteous. But he's also gracious, isn't he? He was so gracious that he, God, made his son, Jesus, to become sin on our part. Unrighteousness. Jesus, the righteous one, became unrighteous. And God the Father pinned all of the punishment for sin upon Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for you and for me. Can you imagine? God's plan from eternity was that that would occur. And it's at one and the same time an act of righteousness to maintain the justice and righteousness of God, but also to be true to the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. He goes on to say in verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. This is why I think when Jesus is explaining to us what it is necessary for us to come and know the Lord is we must become like little children. doesn't mean that we have to be illiterate or ignorant intellectually. No. What it means, little children have the quality of humility. They don't have the problem with pride that we as adults have developed. And you have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God in order that you may experience the salvation of God. And so the Lord wants us to understand that, just like this man understood it. The Lord preserves the simple. The Christian faith, on an intellectual level, sometimes is hard to understand especially for people who are all tangled up in religion, seeking, that they are, seeking and thinking they have to make themselves right with God, or with people who are tangled up with their own intellects to the exclusion of being open to receiving something outside the realm of intellectualism, but that which does very well make sense when you understand the gospel of God. But being simple means to come in humility before the Lord. And it takes the revelation of God. God speaks to us through his word, as we've seen already. And he brings life into our lives. The Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. And that would involve those of us who know Christ sharing the gospel, which is the gospel of truth and liberation and life. He says in the last part of verse 6, I was brought low 
and he saved me. That's where this word saved comes up in the text that I mentioned earlier about something that's free and open and broad, the opposite of being cramped. That's the life Christ has for us. But in order to enter into that kind of life, we have to be brought low, as has been mentioned. We have to humble ourselves. And then he speaks to himself. Any of you ever talk to yourself? Don't tell me you don't. I know everybody talks to himself or herself. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Maybe a time had already occurred after this man had humbled himself before God and God had brought him into a broad place where there was something that was upsetting and un resting that entered into his life, but he had to remind himself, he spoke to his soul, my soul, return to your rest. Remember what Jesus says in his great invitation to follow him. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. Take my yoke upon you and you shall find rest for your soul. You know what Jesus is saying there? The yoke of Christ is a symbol of submission to him and letting him teach us and let his example be that which we follow and let us team up with him. That's the calling we have as followers of Christ and Christ uses our lives as we team up with him and he finds rest for our soul. Are you restless today in your life? Well, the good news for you is Jesus will give you the rest you need. Among the names which God gives himself in the Old Testament, he calls himself Jehovah Shalom, which ordinarily is translated the Lord is our peace. And that is a good translation, but not a totally adequate translation. The peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That is true. And when we do what Paul says in the book of Philippians, finally, brothers, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and trustworthy, think about these things. Whatever you've received from me or heard from me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. We need to know that our God, who is the God of peace, the Prince of Peace, Jehovah Shalom is a God who also gives us a well-rounded life that permits us as we relate to him in submission to him to understand that he in his wisdom and providence even sometimes brings difficulty into our lives. And those things in themselves are not our enemies. God causes all things to work together for good according to his purpose for all those who love him. This man had experienced trouble, and his trouble was an asset. He learned it was an asset because it drove him into a deeper relationship with the Lord. Rather than becoming bitter toward the Lord, what did this man do? He sought the Lord. He was brought low by what happened, and he trusted the Lord, and he spoke to his soul, return to your rest, O my soul. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Has he dealt bountifully with you? Those of us who know Christ, we may be in a cauldron today of difficulty. 
But the reality is our bounty is far exceeding the trouble that we have today. We just need to keep our eyes on the Lord. Then this rescue that the Lord has made is amazing. Look at verse 8. After we have cried out to the Lord and he hears us and he delivers us from the hand of the adversary, as the psalmist in 107 says, what does he say here in verse 8? For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. Here again is his testimony. What was the thing that precipitated his belief? It's here very clearly. He was led to faith by his great affliction. And then he says, in my alarm, all men are liars. This is the only reference that gives us an idea of what kind of affliction he was undergoing. What would you conclude when he says, all men are liars? What was he going through? He was being spoken poorly of, I'm sure. In Proverbs 22.1, the Bible says, a good name is to be desired above all else, above all riches in life. A good name. Some of us have more money than others. Some of us have more prestige than others. Some of us have better homes than others. I'm not talking about the domicile in which we live, but there's more harmony in some homes than others. But the thing is, we can have peace in all of those if we really understand whose we are. Not who we are primarily, but to whom we belong. To whom do we belong if we know Christ? We belong to God the Father who is interested in every facet of our lives and wants to be involved in ministering to us so that he in turn can minister through us once he's brought us through a time of testing in our lives. So this man had had his reputation ruined. There's nothing quite like having your reputation ruined. You lose it. Something you've lived years to develop. This man, we don't know how old he was, but he probably had worked hard at keeping a good reputation, keeping his word, paying his debts, if he had debts, on time, always caring for people, and all of a sudden, boom, it was gone. There was a campaign against him. It was an affliction, and he didn't become bitter. Rather, he became a man who grew through that. Now, let's look at the last section of this passage of Scripture. We've looked at the request and the rescue. Let's look at the response of this man. And by the way, I hope I can do justice to this passage because this is a real picture of worship. Normally, we relegate worship to a gathering like this. We say, we're going to the worship service today. And there's some element of truth there. And then today, in my lifetime, worship has been narrowed down just to music. Well, music is a vital part, and I'm grateful for the music, believe me. The Christian faith is the only faith that has a full-blown commitment to worshiping the Lord, singing, and making melody in our hearts, if nothing else. Some of you won't sing out loud because you can't sing. You don't think. But it's not 
us who is listening to your singing. So go ahead and take the dive, okay? Just start singing to the Lord. That's who we're singing to. We're worshiping the Lord, aren't we? So it's even more than anything we do. Hear a sermon like this or a teaching. It's more than teaching, preaching. It's more than all of this. It's a day-by-day walk with the Lord. In the book of Romans, you're familiar with the most of you this statement. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And the word worship is the word that we get the word liturgy from, literally. Liturgia is the word. You can hear our English word liturgical or liturgy, liturgy rather, coming from that. So worship, let's see what it says about worship. Verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. When we come together like this, and when we go out from here, and you're in your home, you're in your workplace, you're in your community, recreational, whatever you're doing, it's always profitable and appropriate to give glory to God. Call on the name of the Lord. Sometimes you'll do that silently. But you'll do it nonetheless in the chamber of your heart sometimes. But you'll lift up the cup of salvation. If this were in the New Testament, we would think it'd be a reference to the Lord's table, wouldn't we? But it predates that. But what we know is that the Lord wants us to call upon his name. It says this more than once, as we're going to see in this section. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. People were warned against making vows in the Old Testament that they did not fulfill, that if they didn't fulfill them, they would have God to deal with. But people, when we make promises to God, we need to fulfill them. I have had occasions when I'm reading a passage like this privately to be reminded of a promise that I had made to another person or to the Lord or to both. And it was a moment where I decided, I'm sorry, Lord, I I apologize. Please forgive me. Help me. Help me, Lord, to fulfill this vow. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. And then verse 16, I'm going to come back to 15 to close today. Oh, Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of thy handmaid. You have loosed my hands. Now, let me stop here. This goes back to the whole idea of presenting our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness and our bodies to God as living sacrifices. Notice the way in which the psalmist describes himself. He says, I'm your servant. David, who wrote more psalms than anyone else that we have knowledge of, at least in our 150-chapter book of psalms, he says this at the end of one of his beautiful psalms. All of his psalms are pertinent to us. But at the end of the 142nd Psalm, as he's signing off, this is what he writes. I am your servant. Are you in that mindset? Do you see yourself as his servant? And he was not talking about someone who worked in a menial task for someone else and was that kind of servant. This guy was talking about someone, he used the word, really of a bond servant, which is the equivalent of a slave. I'm your slave. Whatever you say, Lord, I'm here to do your bidding. 
That is the true picture of a person who knows the salvation of the Lord. And it's the outgrowth of that kind of relationship. Then verse 17, to you I shall offer a sacrifice of praise, and here it is again, and call upon the name of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 13, 15, the word of God says, through him, that would be Jesus Christ, through him we continually offer up the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips which confess or praise his name. Now why in the world would the writer of Hebrews talk about it's a sacrifice of praise or thanksgiving? Well, the same reason this psalmist did and the same reason that throughout the psalms we hear this same sort of language, a sacrifice of praise, a thanksgiving. But the writer of Hebrews adds another dimension to it. Through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. There's sometimes when it's really simple to be thankful, isn't aren't there? We can be thankful for a lot of things. The difficulty comes when we find trouble. Are you adept at thanking the Lord for your trouble? Is that your first thought when you have a problem? I doubt it is always. Some of you are mature enough it is your first thought. I still have to remind myself I have to thank you, Lord, and I know I can thank you because I know you're sovereign. I know you're in charge of my life. I know you're my father. I know I'm your child. I know you're going to take care of me. And I have a long track record of that where I've had trouble and I cried out to the Lord. He came. He didn't remove the trouble in every case. In some cases, I still have trouble. And I've asked him to please take that away, Lord. He said, no, not yet. In some cases, he said, not ever. But I've learned to be grateful. And the Lord blesses us. And it's a beautiful act of worship, isn't it? I think, quite frankly, it's the biggest act of worship. Because you have to deny yourself and really focus on the Lord in that situation. And believe who he says he is. That he is a sovereign God. Look at verse 18. I shall pay my vows to the Lord, O may it be, in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Well, we come to a place like this to worship. For this man, it was at the tabernacle or the temple, depending upon the era in which he lived. It was at Jerusalem, was the place that he wanted to go. I was glad when they said to me, David wrote in Psalm 122, let us go to the house of the Lord. One of the reasons he was glad is because there were other people there besides himself. He was not alone. He went there not so he felt better because he knew there were other people around. And we all, to one degree or another, are interested in being with a group of people, be it small or medium-sized or large. But when God's people come together to worship the Lord, something can happen. The Lord says, wherever two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And so he shows up. Sometimes we feel like he's here and he may not be. I've had that happen. Or sometimes we don't feel anything and he's still here. He, he is here among us independent of what we feel. It's about his promise and his coming to minister to us. So where does it happen? Real worship, of course, can happen personally. I've hopefully made that point. When you're alone, 
when you're doing whatever you're doing, whatever it is, every situation, if it's in dependence upon the Lord, is going to be a venue for the Lord being there, and you can worship Him. But there's nothing like being with a group of brothers and sisters in Christ who love God and put aside time to come together with the body of Christ for this purpose. Let's go back to verse 15 as I finish this morning. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, is the way the New American Standard puts it, saints, the more recent translations. I'm going to bite that one. It, it's the same as godly ones. When you look at the one word in the Hebrew, it's translated godly ones. It has to do with being set apart with, by God. A saint is not someone who's been memorialized in a stained glass window, nor is it a person who's been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church or any other body of people who make saints out of humans. The Bible says in Rome, not Romans, excuse me, Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Philippi, in Christ rather, in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Everyone who knows Jesus is a saint. The word saint simply means set apart for God's use. If you know Christ, you've been set apart for his use. He has set you apart so that he can glorify himself through you. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which you prepared in advance to do, so that you can let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is a great life we have. Can you imagine? Sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Unbelievable. Can you imagine that God has something for you to do every day? But prior to that, we need to learn to be so that we can really do. And to be what Christ wants us to be, we have to be like this psalmist. We have to be humble. We have to be loving. We have to be kind. And all those things come from our relationship to God by the Holy Spirit of God. He's waiting for us to yield ourselves, not just once. That's, we've got to do it. There's got to be a point of departure from depending on Mike Woods and depending on Jesus. I had to make that point of departure. I remember it so well. I was 22 years of age. I knelt with my pastor. I didn't have to have my pastor with me. I just knelt with my pastor. And I was overwhelmed with who I had become as a person. I was a church-going man. I was a man who actually was involved in some form of ministry with young people. But I knew I had not received from the Lord the power he was waiting to give me to live the Christian life because I was reserving a big part of me for me. And it was in that moment of recognition that things changed. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, none of us wants to develop a death wish. The one who comes nearest to that 
when he was in his right mind was Paul. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When we depart from this life, we're going to heaven to be with the Lord forever. And we're going to serve him there too. Thank the Lord for that throughout eternity and continue to grow. Would you bow your head? Are you a person who has come to know the Lord in the way in which this psalmist did? Have you truly yielded everything you know about yourself to the Lord? Your spirit and your soul, which is made up of your mind and your emotions and your will and your body. Do you recognize your body as the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God if you've received Christ? If you haven't done that, humble yourself today. You can do it right now in the privacy of your heart. And say, Lord, I want you to be everything to me. I need you. I must have you, Lord. Thank you for wanting me to be one who is set apart for your glory and your grace. Take full control. Fill me with your spirit, O oh Lord. Take over. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.